following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judah, Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trachonius, and Lysias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Amen. So in verse 1 and first part of verse 2, Luke begins with giving a historical context of where we're, where we're beginning in, the, in this ministry of John. And historical context is important, isn't it? Because it gives meaning to the story. It, it kind of gives the backdrop for where the story actually takes place. And it, it and, and it makes a big difference, doesn't it? The, the historical context of, of occurrences, because, for instance, if I, if I were to tell you I was in the store shopping for Valentine's Day in 2018 or 2019, it, make, it makes a big difference in, in the two, year 2020 or the year the 2021. Because now you're p- picturing masks. You're picturing perhaps a volatile uh, history. A political context into which just shopping for Valentine's Day or some uh, other holiday takes on a different kind of meaning. It takes on a different context. He starts at the top with the Emperor Tiberius Caesar. History records that Tiberius began, began his reign at around A.D. 14. He was the second emperor after Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus being the first, Tiberius first two years of his reign started during the last two years of Augustus' reign, beginning in A.D. 14. And the text says that this was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So this brings us to the year A.D. 29, just before the beginning of the ministry of Christ in A.D. 30. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judah. Herod ruled Galilee. So we recognize those names, right? We have a list of other names that we don't really realize, we don't really recognize because that probably would have had a great deal of significance to the people who lived in that time period and those regions. But we know Pontius Pilate, right? And we know Herod. These guys actually enter into the story. He talks about the spiritual leadership, Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was a high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. He was installed by a Roman official and then removed by a Roman official, Quirinius. And then Annas, his son-in-law, was put in in his place. 
Now, the Jews don't accept that because once you're a high priest, you're a high priest for life. So they, they regarded Annas as kind of a, a deputy. That The name for that is Sagan. But that kind of gives meaning to this story because if, if you read this, you understand that this story takes place within the context of spirit, of, of political tension, political upheaval. It's kind of like if you were to say in the first year of the president, of President Biden, Ron DeSantis being the governor of Florida, Brian Kemp being the, the governor of Georgia. If 20 years from now you'd think back, oh yeah, I remember that. Didn't, weren't there riots during that time? Wasn't there such a feeling of tension that you were afraid to even come close to broaching the topic of politics even in your own marriage, let alone your own family or workplace? You just never talk about it because it's so much tension sometimes it feels like. I remember the riots that occurred in 2020 out on the street in Seattle and other cities and then the riot that occurred in Washington, D.C. that spilled into our very Capitol building. This is a time of political tension. But these people really brought the political tension. If you want to see political tension, Herod killed John, didn't he? For specious reasons. Pilate was known for various slayings, such as the ones mentioned in Scripture where he he killed these Galileans who were there to worship God and he mingled their blood with their sacrifices, the blood of their sacrifices. Tiberius was a ravenous murderer toward the end of his reign. So the killing, he killed so many people in Rome who were part of well-connected uh, families that they said that the bodies stacked up. These guys were rough. These guys were, these guys were, were, were playing for keeps. And we see John entering in to this context of political tension and expectation as a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Look at verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went out into all the region of, around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And when we look at that phrase, the word of God came to John, it means that the Spirit of God came upon John. The Spirit of God came upon John and filled him with a message from heaven. This would have, this would have been understood in the minds of those of the nation of Israel at that time as a, as a, a prophetic mantle of a national level calling to the office of prophet. It was a common expression. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 3 says the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. In Jonah chapter 1 verse 1 and 2, I'll read it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. You see, the prophetic mantle came upon him with great authority, and the people of that time understood him to be a prophet of a national level of authority. That's what John was. And he came dressed in camel's hair, eating wild honey, and locusts. People would have seen that and that would have meant something to them. They would have been like, wait a minute, that sounds like Elijah. That's what Elijah did. What's the significance of that? 
The significance of that is the authority of Elijah and also the fulfillment of a prophecy. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 11 that John actually fulfilled the prophecy of the coming of Elijah before the great and, de- uh, great and terrible day of the Lord. I'll read Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And it's within to this context that, that John steps. It was time for John to begin his ministry. And we've studied John a lot because we preached through the book of John. So I don't want to go further than that, but, but this is, this is the context. This is, this is the backdrop upon which John steps to start preaching about what we see here as called a baptism. A baptism. A baptism of what? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what does that mean? A baptism for the forgiveness of sins? Well, we know that forgiveness of sins comes through faith. Right? Salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. Yet we have here taught about a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. What does this mean? Well, let's begin with the word baptism. Baptism is a Greek word, baptisma. It literally means to submerge a solid into a liquid. It could even it could even be translated submerged. It has a parallel in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are lots of uh, ceremonial washings that are described. In Leviticus 15, 5 through 8, it describes some of these washings. The word there in the Old Testament is rakats. It has the idea of just washing. It's a very general term. But as time wore on, the rabbis began to see this as a full submersion. So when you see a Jew entering into the mikvah and, 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 and participating in the rakats to become ceremonially and ritually clean, they actually go underneath the water. And it reminds us, it looks like visually a baptism that we would understand as submersion baptism. It had the, it had the, it, it had the idea of washing one's ceremonial uncleanness away so that they were now pure to go into the presence of God and worship God in the temple. It's not the same thing as a baptism of repentance. However, it's related, right? Because it has to do with sin in the sense of, or the symbol of sin in ceremonial uncleanness. So it's different, but it's related. The baptism of repentance is also different than the baptism of Christ. The baptism of Christ symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our new walk with Him, our new life with Him. But Jesus hadn't yet died. Let me read from Acts chapter 19. This will really show the difference in the ministries of of John the Baptist here in his baptism And the baptism of Jesus Christ and what that is and what that symbolizes. Acts chapter 19 verse 1, I'll read through 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through 
the inland country and came to Emphasis. And there he found disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Same baptism, baptism of repentance. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Upon hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. So when Jesus, when, when, when Pete, excuse me, Peter, Paul, and Mary, when Paul came and he realized that these people had received the baptism of John, he saw it necessary for them to be rebaptized. And when they were, they received the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. John's baptism does not symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection, it does not give you the forgiveness of sins, nor does it give you or prepare or, or uh, yield unto you the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then why then does it call it the baptism of repentance? Well, repentance, the word here is metonia. Repentance means to change one's mind, change one's purpose. So if you're purposing to go in this direction, sin and your own way, you change that and and now your purpose is obedience and following God's word in righteousness. Some say, probably the best way to understand this is this positions you for forgiveness of sins. Why? Because when you when you go to take a step of repentance without the Holy Spirit, what happens? Are you successful? No. What happens when you try to change yourself without the, the saving, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit? What happens when you try to change yourself? You fail, right? Yes, that's right. You can't change yourself. Look at what John said to them. Luke chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. This is going to be preached later, but I have to get to this because it's so um, important to the context. The crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, whoever has two tunics, let him share with one who has none. And whoever has food to do likewise. Tax collectors also came and were baptized and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more than you are authorized to. Soldiers asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone who, by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. He was asking them to turn. He was asking them to start to move away from their own life and toward righteousness. It was this movement that would position somebody to understand the depth of their own need for Christ so that when Christ came, they would be ready to accept him. And we know that many thousands and thousands did on the day of Pentecost and in the preaching that came after that, you could see this preparatory work of John the Baptist. This was the path laid out by God, by his prophet John the Baptist, toward forgiveness of sins. It was a preparatory work. This baptism would have prepared you, your mind, your heart, to receive the Messiah and his message of forgiveness when he came. And he was coming. John the Baptist would say... 
There is one coming after me who was from before me, whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Let's look at verse 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And it goes on to say, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, and etc. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. The context of which is the coming of the Messiah. Pastor Colin uh, pointed out a couple of weeks ago that the first 39 chapters don't mention the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. But at chapter 40, all of a sudden, it's as if the light of revelation of the Messiah bursts forth. And Isaiah chapter 40 says... Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. It goes on to to say these verses that that are quoted here by Luke, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. I like this because it shows us an example of how prophecy is a mixture of literal Things, predictions, prophecy, and metaphorical images. They're mixed in there in such a way that brings the truth to life. It doesn't just speak to our minds, it speaks to our hearts. Because there's something poetic about it. There's something about it that, that, that isn't just information, right? Prophecy isn't just God spoon-feeding you the future, right? You'll notice that when you approach the, the, the book of Revelation, there's so much imagery that some people are tempted to become frustrated because they don't feel that they're qualified to interpret all of the imagery. But the imagery is very important because it has so many layers of rich meaning. It has a spiritual component. It has a physical, geopolitical component. Look at the first part. A voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is exactly literally what happened. He was a literal man, John the Baptist, with a voice. He went out into the wilderness, literally. The wilderness was not just a symbol of sin, where he was actually in a house, speaking to somebody in a soft voice, and it's like, well, I mean, it's kind of figuratively a cry. No, he's literally out there. He's literally out there in the middle of nowhere, crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. But then it gets real figurative there, doesn't it? Make his path straight. What does that mean? It goes on to say um, that the valleys should be filled and every mountain should be, you know, the paths are being straightened. Well, if you look at the, the geography of Palestine or Israel or, you know, this area, none of that actually literally occurred. The paths are wandering all over the place. They're at mountains and valleys and all these things. These did not literally occur. Well, what does it mean then? I, I read a great interpretation of this. Those that are low the valleys, those individuals that are low and discouraged and hopeless will be elevated to the hope of grace. Every mountain, that is people who are lofty and and, and self-righteous and and self-reliant will be humbled to be brought to the point of repentance. Those crooked in their heart shall become straight. Their hearts will, will see the meaning of righteousness. The rough places, those who are rough and coarse in their heart, those who have remained independent, 
and impenetrant to the, to the, the message of faith will become open to faith and repentance. Those barriers will be removed. These barriers have to be removed in people's hearts to prepare the way of Christ and His ministry and His church. His apostles, the preaching, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the whole thing. Verse 6, All flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh. Everyone. Why? Because John was heralding a message that was intended for a global audience. He was coming as a national level prophet, but his message was so much greater. Because he was heralding not just the Savior of Israel, but the Savior of the world. No longer was this just to be spoken of in the corner of the world by a privileged few who have been given the law and the revelation of God, but now messengers would be sent throughout the entire world. The twelve apostles, the evangelists, the missionaries, the church planters, and it's still going on. People in China have heard. People in Australia have heard. People in North America, South America, Africa, every continent has heard the message. And there are still some who may perhaps have not heard, but they will hear. Those people groups will be reached. Now, that is the passage. I have a couple of points of application in an attempt to bring some of this into our immediate context and where we're living. What do we do with this? Well, number one, I have three. Number one, trust God in times of political tension and upheaval. The coming of the Messiah came during a time when there was great political upheaval. There were times of massacre. There were times of wars. There were times of of political unrest. But God is often working in times of political unrest. You look at King David, prophet, the prophet Daniel, Ruth, Esther. The coming of the Messiah is no different. We see in our time political upheaval. We see violence in the Middle East. We see controversy that surrounds the pandemic. We see political dissension and civil disobedience. Don't be afraid of political dissension. Don't be afraid if it seems like the very foundations of our our nation are being shaken. These things are meant to take place in the sovereignty of God. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 through 7. He sat on the Mount of Olives and his disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against king, uh, nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all of these are but the beginning of birth pangs. The, the, the part I want to highlight there is see that you are not alarmed. Jesus is concerned about their heart. He's concerned about their faith. 
He's concerned about how they respond and how they react when somebody comes to them and says, did you know that the emperor Tiberius is really, really angry with our nation? Did you know that Herod was really, really angry with what Jesus said and John the Baptist said and what you said? Did you hear that Pilate's in trouble with Tiberius? Did you hear that there are, there's, there's the marching of these various, <clears throat> various legions into new positions? In the ancient world, might makes right, especially compared to the rule of law today. That could have easily gripped anybody's heart with absolute fear. But Jesus says, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. I believe that this, this statement right here is not just a specific guidance to those who are listening. It's not just a specific guidance to the church at the end of the age facing the Antichrist. This is a general principle that applies to all of us, all of us at all times. God is in control. God is working behind the scenes to manage the the affairs of the nations so that His will is accomplished. If America faces a foreign threat and economic depression, do not be alarmed. God is our foundation. God will be our strength. And He will provide for us. Point number two, repent of your sins. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness is to repent. But that voice is still calling to us, isn't it? His, his, even though his, his message was partial and it was preparatory, it was, it's still relevant today. Repentance is part of what Jesus asks of us in the act of believing on him in faith. Salvation is not by repentance, but it is not without repentance. In other words, all those who receive Christ truly and totally and believe on Him for their salvation, they repent of their sins. Jesus told them to count the cost. If any man would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's repentance. That's the ultimate picture of repentance. To deny yourself daily and to pick up the cross of self-denial and walk with that daily. We also know that repentance as, as the fruit of true faith. In Acts chapter 16 verse 31, and they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You in your household. We now know that it's not just about a baptism of repentance. Right? If you would have received that baptism and the Apostle Paul came to you, you would have had to have been rebaptized, received the Holy Spirit. How much more should we repent now that we know that salvation is by faith? That salvation when we when we when we enter into Once we've been saved and we enter into the waters of baptism as a symbol of what we've received, we're receiving a baptism that symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Buried in the likeness of His death and raised to walk in newness of life. 
Repent. Turn to Him. And, and, and when you receive the Holy Spirit, re- rely on Him. We don't have to rely on ourselves anymore. Jesus didn't just turn and just say, for the one who has two tunics, let him share. Yes, He said those things. But He spoke of faith. He brought with Him the gift of the Holy Spirit. He sent the gift of the Holy Spirit when He went back to heaven. And now we walk with that supernatural empowering. Point number three. All flesh will see the salvation of God. This is our prophetic time frame. All flesh. The gospel has gone out across the globe and is continuing to reach new people groups. All flesh is seeing the salvation of God, aren't they? Not everybody is repenting. Not everybody is accepting it. That's true. But one day this will be fulfilled literally when Christ returns. They'll see it. It may be too late for many. But they'll see it. Let's look at some things that describe the church age. The age of grace. The new covenant. The great commission. Matthew 28, 18-20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 24, verse 14, it says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's our perspective. It's not trying to push on the world to push them into some Christian cultural mold. It's about sharing the gospel. It's about seeing the salvation of those who will come, who are appointed to salvation, and then the end will come. All nations will see Christ when He returns. Matthew 24, verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Isn't that an amazing encouragement? Isn't that an encouragement? This is our heritage. And when we walk in that revelation, yes, we'll speak the truth in love, and yes, we'll be rejected, and yes, we may see a a, a great revival in America, or maybe we will not. Maybe it will crumble into the dust of history. Maybe we won't even make it that far. Maybe Christ will come back before any of that even occurs. We don't know, but what we do know is this is what's going to happen. The Son of Man is coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. If you do not know Christ today as your Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior, that's where the repentance comes in. If you accept Him as Savior, you're accepting Him as something that He's not. He's not just Savior. He is Lord. That's who He is. If you don't want to accept Him as Lord, kind of accepting something of your own imagination. 
accepting him as Lord is saying, I no longer value my own independence and just doing everything, just doing whatever I want. I'm going to come under your lordship. I'm going to repent. That's what repentance is, changing your purpose. My purpose was just avoiding pain and going after pleasure. And now my purpose is obedience and relationship with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you don't have that today, turn to Him today in faith. Turn to Him and give Him your life and believe on Him. And through that faith, receive the salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.